March the 15th, 2015, lecture discussion number 190 on the book of Romans. And once again, many things of interest have ascended up unto the surface here. Uh, we find ourselves confronting the aggregate of that which is the sign of Israel. That's where we have been discussing the sign of Israel and in its totality. Uh, you cannot uh, deal with the sign of Israel very easily individually. We're going to try in the weeks to come, but it is a monster uh, piece to, to net negotiate. So that's where we are, and each and every day in our world, another substantial event um, is revealed that is part of this sign. So we're watching in our lifetime, every day on the news, something about the sign of Israel, which is fundamental to your Bible. And that's a very exciting thing to be able to do. It hasn't happened for thousands of years, and there it is happening in your lifetime. And as you know, ancient Babylon, the Babylonian empire founded by Nimrod, brought to its height by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in the book of Daniel, is mostly within the current country of Iraq. That is where the Babylonian Empire is today. And Iraq is on the precipice of disintegration, something that I have said, uh, I have maintained is inevitable. Let me say it again. Iraq will not survive. If it collapses, that'll be an extraordinary event as well, just like all the others that have happened in the last 50 years. The Shiite faction of Iraq is supported by Iran, which is also Shiite mostly. Bill the Cow is pointing out that there's a tremendous growth of uh, Iranian Christians, though. I wonder what will happen to them. The Sunnis, so we have Shiites and we have Sunnis. The Sunnis were under Saddam Hussein, who was... Uh, Sunni and uh, Saddam Hussein oppressed the Shiites as well as the Kurds. But uh, he, he indiscriminately slaughtered both the Kurds and the Shiites during his reign. But the Sunnis are now who? Who are they now? They've become ISIS. They are flying the black flag of Al-Qaeda. So the math generally goes something like this. So if I drew a map, and those of you on the Internet, I'm using my artistic capabilities once more. And so everyone in the auditorium knows this is the scale. It's a magnificent. It has geographical accents that are extraordinary. Those of you on the Internet, however, do not get the benefit of this. And you're lucky. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to draw Iraq. And there is, I'm going to put Syria over here and Turkey over here. Whoops, I need to make Turkey closer there. And essentially, Iran, I'll put it over here somewhere, and that'll get us all close. Beautiful, is it not? Never mind. Let me make more boxes instead of things that are difficult. to. So I'll put a box here and a box here. There we go. So I'm going to call this Syria. I'm going to call that the modern-day Turkey. This will be Iraq. And this is Iran. Now, Iran is much larger than Iraq, not to scale. So, the Sunnis, um, well, let's just do it this way. The Kurds are primarily here, somewhere in there. Maybe not so much that far, right in here. That's the Kurds. So, they're primarily to the north, a little bit to the west, though they lost some of that territory to uh, the ISIS or Al-Qaeda. The Sunni Arabs 
are mostly in the Northwest. There, oh, I have different colored pens. Wow. They're right here. Okay. Now, ISIS, as you know, has got parts of Syria, and it's working its way this way as well. It has territory now uh, inside of uh, Libya and in Yemen. So I can't represent all of that. But that would be ISIS, or that would be the Sunnis. So the Kurds are approximately uh, 20%. Kurds, 20%. Sunnis, 20%. And the remainder, pretty much the uh, Shiites. They have the rest of the territory. Okay? And they dominate Baghdad. So right in here would be the Shiites. And they've got most of that. And then the rest of it is pretty much open for grabs now, and it's being fought over. And mixed in with the Kurds are the Assyrian Christians, and that's important to know. But effectively, those are the three divisions. So let me put the Shiites on here. I would put them at about 50%, maybe 55%. Now, obviously, they have the, the largest uh, capability. And the Kurds... One out. They've always wanted out. They've never wanted to be a part of Iraq. Uh, they never wanted to be controlled by Baghdad at any time ever. And they have been withdrawing themselves politically, economically, and militarily ever since the Gulf War. The Turks and the uh, Syrians have largely uh, Kurdish populations. So not only are the Kurds in Iraq, but there are Kurds in Turkey and there are Kurds in Syria. You know that ISIS has been attacking the Kurds in Syria and, and Turkey has refused to intervene, right? It's because the Turks don't like the Kurds much and they're worried about the Kurdish state becoming a Kurdish state because what will the Kurdish state do if they begin to function? That's right. They're going to move towards independence and then they're likely to see some of Turkey and some of Syria. So the Syrians and the Turks... Don't like the Kurds, and uh, nor do the Sunnis. So that's why both Turkey and Syria resist arming the Kurdish forces, and they don't want the United States to arm the Kurdish forces, because if they do, they know the Kurds already have great capabilities, and they'll just immediately begin to take control of territory they considered long theirs. Are they right about that? Yes, they are. It's a Syria. If you remember my New Year's prediction on this situation, I, I, and why would you? <laughs> I, I proposed, and I believe the Kurds will eventually grow in strength to the point where they reestablish the Assyrian nation, as per Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. And so I watch the news. I'm invested in this. I watch the news to see uh, if this demonstrates itself. What I mean by that is I don't want to miss the beginnings. Is If the Assyrian nation begins to form, I want to watch it because that's going to be cool. Because, you see, military experts and geopolitical scholars are now openly admitting something that they weren't doing at the time that uh, we intervened in Iraq. They're openly stating now that the nation of Iraq is going to soon collapse. It's hopeless. Now, our president recently called for Iraq's territorial integrity to be respected. One problem with that, Iraq never has had 
territorial integrity. Never. All it possessed was chronic instability. But far more importantly, the nation of Iraq is in contradiction to biblical prophecy. That's a bad place to be. Who, by the way, do you know, most of us are old enough to remember uh, the events, because they were taught when we were all kids, that demonstrates my problem, how old I am, but we were taught who, who effectively created the nation of Iraq, and that was Europeans after World War II, some after World War I. But it's in conflict, contradiction to biblical prophecy, the nation of Iraq is, and that means Iraq cannot exist. And now it's struggling, but it will not exist. The truth of the prophecy of Israel has continued to be unveiled. The fact that Iraq is in conflict with the sign of Israel is very, very important to us as Christians. We need to know that. Iraq plays no part as constituted today. It plays no part in the Bible. Babylon? Oh, yeah. There's lots about Babylon. How about Assyria? Lots about Assyria. How about Israel? The Bible was boiling to the top with references to Israel. Absolutely, yes. Egypt? Yes. No Iraq. Thus it will, in accordance to the sign that is the nation of Israel, deconstruct. And I say rapidly. When the United States military freed the Kurds and the Assyrian Christians and tore apart Saddam Hussein's totalitarian regime, that was the headmost event. That was the event that told you that Iraq was about to collapse and, and, and disintegrate. So we now are awaiting the inevitable, the promised uh, sequential occurrences, for lack of a better term. What's coming next? Iraq will collapse. Something will come next. Now, last Sunday also, I issued uh, once again what can only be classified as a pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. I said, if the sign of Israel is true, I granted the hypothesis that it's possible it's not. It isn't possible it isn't true. It is true. But let's just see the, the premise and say, if it is true, then something else is affected by that. Do you remember what I said? Probably not. It's okay. I'll say it again. When the sign of Israel is revealed to be true, then all evolutionary concepts are ruined. Absolutely ruined. So not only is Iraq in contradiction to the sign of Israel, evolutionary concepts is in contradiction with the sign of Israel. Let me rephrase it. If the nation of Israel is reformed as a nation, and it is, it happened. 1948, right? 1949. It, when the nation of Israel was resurrected, and it is indeed resurrected, it is indeed risen, then evolution as it applies to the origin of living things is utterly made desolate by that fact fact of the existence of Israel as a nation destroys evolutionary concepts. Let me be more clear. The very existence of the nation of Israel as repeatedly prophesied in Scripture makes it impossible for evolution to be true. Now, you wouldn't know that listening to lots of 
people today that stand behind podiums that call themselves theistic evolutionists. They obviously have not spent much time studying the sign of Israel. The prophecies of Israel and monistic physicalism are exclusive. They cannot stand together in any way. Only one stands. Evolutionary philosophy cannot survive in the presence of the nation of Israel. Think Think light and cockroaches. Now, that'll make people mad. Okay, that's I shouldn't be so disrespectful. But I am, so I guess I will be that. If evolutionary philosophies cannot survive if there is a nation of Israel. And there is a nation of Israel. It is seldom that anyone discusses this, but nonetheless, it's a fact of Scripture. Just as the nation of Iraq, which is a geographic abstraction European conceived, evolution is also contradicted by the sign of Israel, and therefore both of them will die. I would not be surprised to see the simultaneous death of Iraq as a European concept with the death of evolutionary philosophy. What would you guys think? If in the next year, Iraq stops existing as the Bible says it must, and evolution is destroyed simultaneously, how much would our world change? Both are inevitable. Both Iraq Iraq and evolution share a characteristic. Neither one of them can survive. Because of the sign of Israel. And by the way, they that, uh, and I submit that this accounts uh, for the hatred of the, uh, from the atheists for the state of Israel. And if you think the atheistic community, uh, has any, uh, affection for Israel, all you have to do is spend 15 minutes uh, reading what they write. They hate the state of Israel. They recognize what a powerful threat Israel is uh, to their beloved evolutionary thinking. Did you ever notice just how just the mere existence of this little tiny country of Israel brings such wrath from the world? It's just amazing the level of hatred for this tiny little country. Again, why is that teeny, tiny little country? Uh, I don't know. So it's about, what, 20 miles wide? So much hatred directed towards it. And I think the condi- this condition uh, is beyond obvious. I think it's self-evident. Israel invokes this visceral response precisely because what its, what its existence represents. So let's just consider the implications. Ooh, my clock is off, Terry. You ha- that's because TJ turned the light off in there. The light comes on, the clock should come on too. Try the other switch. There it is, thank you. I need to know that. My bright green flashing clock. That's the only hope the congregational classroom has that I'll finish. Without that clock, I could go till Tuesday 
without any difficulty, and you all fear that, I know. Okay, Israel is hated because of what its existence represents. And again, let's think about the implication. If all of what the Bible says of Israel at the time of the end of the age of the Gentiles is revealed to be true without dispute, no contravening evidence, if everything that the Bible says about Israel just at the end of the age of the Gentiles, the age of the Gentiles, as you know, started with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, 586 B.C., and it's still going. And it does come to an end. The Bible says it does end. There is an end of the age of the Gentile. So if everything the Bible says just about Israel, just at the end of the age of the Gentiles, turns out to be true without controversy, proven truth that is unassailable, then what happens next? If I can prove that everything that the Bible says about Israel at the end of the age of the Gentile is true. One, it's true that the nation of Israel will be reborn. So far, so good, right? It's true that Iraq will not be currently constituted. It's true that Israel will be totally isolated. It's true that a confederacy from the north comes and attacks them. That is what the Bible says is going to happen One, they'll be in Israel. Two, they'll be isolated. They'll be despised and hated. They'll fight by themselves if they fight at all. No one will fight for them except God. And this huge confederacy will come to destroy them. They will be the focus of the world at the end of the age of the Gentiles. How's the Bible doing? Assyria will be reborn. All of these things. If all of that prophecy just at the end is proven truth, then what what are we going to say about all the other passages that do what? They attest to what? They attest to the beginnings of Israel or the creation of Israel. Let me reword it. If the final prophecies of Israel are witnessed and confirmed, what about the commencement prophecies? Or what I call intentionally the Genesis prophecies. Immediately, the questions of who, then, is the only true God of creation and what is his plan are instantly answered. As soon as I establish the prophecies at the end are true, then I've established all the beginning prophecies true and all the prophecies in the middle true. I I validate all of them. How many prophecies is that? Thousands. They're all true. What is a prophecy? They're instantly established. There's only one true God and one true salvation. As Israel is the firstborn tested in the wilderness, Jesus Christ, typological fulfillment, the antitype, he is the firstborn tested in the wilderness. Israel typologically that typology is unmistakable. They, they portrait, or they are a portrait of Christ. Therefore, by being so, they reveal the identity of Christ immediately. They tell us who the I am of the burning bush is, and they say, the prophecies of Israel say that it is Christ. He is the one that says, I am 
says it over and over again. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He is the I am. He's the one that brought forth Israel. He's the one that commenced the beginnings, the prophecies of Israel. He's the or origin, if you will, of Israel. And he also says he's the only one that resurrects. And he's the only source of life. And that life originates from him. And from Christ alone. There aren't any other gods. There's just me, he says. Jesus God. That's all. You can easily see that that generates horror and loathing and animus and enmity from all who have invested themselves in counterfeit systems, be it atheist or pagan. Because if Israel is true, all of Scripture turns out to be true. Every bit of it. That's why watching the sign that is Israel becomes very important. Israel how many prophecies are about Israel are there again? Thousands and thousands. How many words written about Israel? Thousands and thousands. If they're true, how do I separate Israel from Scripture? I can't. Replacement theology notwithstanding. God has placed his nation into his timeline. Note how I said that. His timeline, he says very clearly when Israel began and when and where Israel goes and how he comes for them. And it's all on a timeline. By that, by timeline, I mean we are able to do something by paying attention to Israel. What are we able to do? We are able to tell time. We know what time it is by just watching Israel, by understanding the sign of Israel. It's one of the great beholds of Scripture. Look at Israel. You can figure out what's going on. You can tell time. People ask me all the, all the time. When do I think the time of something is? Well, we've been given another clock to watch. Watch Israel. You can tell time. Most really got that figured out for them when Israel in 1948-49 rose up again as a nation. They realized, wow, time of the age of the Gentiles now has to be almost over. All we're waiting for is a few more things, right? And, and you see, the very nature of true prophecy is that it is transcendent and not constrained by time. True prophecy necessitates that the one who dispenses the prophecy, the, the one who tells you the prophecy, from whom the prophecy comes, that person has to be in authority over time. Time isn't a barrier to him. In other words, every time a prophecy is fulfilled, revealed as truth, it is proof that the source of that truth is the creator of time. And the evolutionists know that. As soon as Israel came back, that's a fulfilled prophecy. For that to be true, that ha there has to be somebody who's the source of that prophecy. The source of that prophecy, for it to be true, means that whoever gave that prophecy isn't subject to time. If he's not subject to time, then he is a timeless observer. In order to see time simultaneously, it, it is required that the observer be the very generator, be the architect of the time. 
itself. It's just like, is there anything faster than light? Einstein says no, but somebody made light. In order to make light, you have to be what? Faster than light. In order to know time uh, simultaneously, you have to be what? The generator of time. You have to be the one who observes all time. So the evolutionists really understand that. They know that, that the consequence of a timeless observer is, is dangerous, is disastrous to the evolutionary paradigm. Evolution cannot withstand prophecy proven true because prophecy proven true says there is an observer who is timeless. And we'll continue in the weeks forthcoming to break apart the sign of Israel. What we're going to do is try to break this massive thing into small pieces. But for today, I just want you to recognize that it is far-reaching. The sign uh, is the the sign that is the nation of Israel carries with it powerful refutations of atheistic monism, and they know it. The ones who don't know this are the Christians, and so they try to compromise with evolution with this theistic. Uh, approach to evolution, which is just absolutely not possible. I can't understand it. Oh, I can't understand it. I do. It's all about money and viability. I say things that automatically make it difficult for churches to be viable. I know that. They offend people. It's okay. Somebody asked me recently, I have a wonderful letter. I don't have time to read it today, but... Uh, it's another one of these that asks me essentially, uh, why do you do what you do? I just want you to know that this sign of Israel carries these powerful refutations of atheistic monism, and they understand it. The church does not seem to, and that's a goal. And people have asked me, why do you do this kind of stuff? And I say, well, I'm really not sure. I turned out to be just drawn to it, and so I have uh, continued to, to, to do it, and um, it's hard to get me to stop now. Some of that stubbornness, some of that is I really do think it's something I'm supposed to do. Does it um, offend people? Yes, it does, and I understand that, and uh, I don't begrudge those who, uh, who don't take these strong positions against evolution. But it's, it's still what I'm going to do, and uh, I'll take my chances, right? Pays your money, take your chances. I, I know that I'm not that far away from standing in front of the throne. I'm going to be 60-something, okay, 40, no, okay, 60-something, in another 30 days, 60 days, whatever it is. And, and I can see uh, the door from here now. So I know pretty soon... I'm going to stand there. Uh Uh-oh, we may be interrupted again. Is that possible? I know. Are you going to interrupt me again? Oh, downstairs with all the little children. Some of them are still alive. That's That's the staff, not the children. The children are prevailing every week. Okay. Point is, is that... uh, um, it is something that I feel like I need to do because I'm not that far away from standing in front of him and I know what he's going to tell me that I didn't do already. This isn't going to be one of them. I'm going to do this one. So that's why.
Okay, along those lines, I received a fantastic letter from uh, James in Texas, who is considering the conventional contemporary church teaching on the rapture, and has found such to be lacking coherence. And uh, I think that he is rightly questioning all aspects of these B-movies that we see, uh, that you all have gotten, right, uh, that are apparently popular, especially amongst churches uh, whose pastors seek to exhibit this kind of media, who find it of value, who want to show their congregation all these movies. I get asked, how come we don't have movie night and popcorn like, like all the other churches? Well, I haven't found a movie yet that I like. It's, uh, sooner or later I will. It can't be long now, right? Somebody's got to do one. I'm inclined to be suspicious of those kinds of movies, as is James from Texas. And ultimately, uh, this is a discussion on the body resurrection of Christ. The rapture is a discussion on the body resurrection of Christ. Because he has an incorruptible body. What do you have? What do I have? Let's answer that quickly. Everyone can see that I have a corrupted body. It's obvious. I have one mirror now. He does not. He has an incorruptible body in contrast to our bodies that decay into dust. Our bodies are resurrected. He resurrected himself. It was impossible for his body not to be resurrected. I often ask, how much power did it take to keep his body un- unfunctioning in the sense un attached to his living soul, that he is, of course, the life itself. Our bodies are different. What is the difference? And then we want to know about the the rapture. We'll make his talk about the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus. Lazarus, Christ pulled him out of the tomb. And what happened to him subsequently? He re-died. New word. So, his resurrection, Lazarus' resurrection is different than the rapture resurrection, isn't it? And certainly different than Christ's resurrection, of which there is only one uh, like him. And the purpose of the rapture, how does the, what, how does the rapture fit into the sign that is Israel? What piece is it? We're going to have to break this sign down. We're going to figure out what piece the rapture is. And also, and this is this exposition of the meaning of 1 Corinthians 15, um, 35. 15.35, I forgot the 15. 35 through, well, how far should we go? 42. Let's read that. Because that is, that is amazing. And what does it actually mean? That's uh, why I like 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, you'll see in a second, because it's a place where Paul insults us again. He calls us that word that I'm not supposed to stay say. I get in trouble every time I say it. People tell me, you shouldn't say that. And I say, well, um, it's because we are stupid. That's why I say it. Here we are, 1535. But someone will say, that's a great sentence. Immediately, what do you ask? Who is this someone that's saying this? Why is he saying it? Is he a good person, a bad person, saved, unsaved? Is it possible he's a Pharisee? But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? Is this an innocent question or a diabolical, malevolent question? 
And what, and with what body do they come? And here's what Paul says. Stupid one. Okay, he says foolish one. He's a lot more polite. What do we know about the someone who will say that? Why is that foolish? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. So we got different kinds of flesh. Other, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. That's extraordinary. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. What is that? You ready for your test on what that means? Oh, he's going to tell you now. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Something about everything he said there has something to do with the resurrection of the dead, which means it has something to do with the sign of the rapture, which has something to do with the sign of Israel in that it is a small piece. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. What's that mean? How's that work? It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. What's a spiritual body? Somehow it's a body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man became, or was, a life-giving spirit. The last Adam, of course, is God himself, Jesus Christ. However, the spiritual was not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Okay, I'll stop right there. Romans 8.23, for those of you who think this isn't a Roman study, is where we're going to be at. We are eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's what it says in Romans 8.23. What is entailed in the adoption of a body? What is entailed in the redemption of our body? Why, in the, why does God insist on resurrecting our dead bodies? Because he does. It's one of his great prophecies. One of his great promises. Why does he do it? What does it mean? What is his plan? How does it all work? This is what James is trying to solve from Texas. He wanted to know what really happens at the rapture. He has some some ideas. Let me ask you this. Do you really think that when we're raptured, you leave behind a pile of clothes? You find that in the Bible somewhere? There'll be a pile. Of, I always want to know if they were folded. You know, were they? Did somebody clean them for me? How did this really work? I've seen all the B movies. All the time, somebody is raptured. What happens? Pile of clothes, right? That's how we can tell. Well, we tell. Okay, he must be gone because he left his clothes. Well, that's a problem for a teenage boy, right? Because his clothes are everywhere. How would you know? You'd always think he was gone. He must have been raptured. Look at the pile of clothes. It's everywhere. 
How in the world is a pile of clothes got something to do with being snatched away? Is that how God does it? Pile of clothes, socks, you know, just strewn clothing all over the place. Really? Does that make sense? Are you ready to defend that? Why, why do you think that? I know why you do. Because of a movie. A movie gotta be true. It's made by Hollywood. How, what could possibly go wrong? What's that? Yes, where his, where his vestment, if you will, is folded up, right? But he's raised himself. Who folded his clothes? James from Texas sees the rapture appropriately inside of the sign of David. I'm sorry, inside of the sign of Israel where it belongs. It becomes incumbent upon us to correctly place it there and determine its purpose within God's plan. So that's on the table. And we should be able to get through Romans 8.23 and 1 Corinthians 15.35 uh, on all the way uh, to uh, uh, 54. We should be able to get through those in uh, maybe a couple of uh, years. Okay, I'm, I'm kidding, just a little bit. Okay, just wanted to get that out so that you know it's coming too for those of you who like to stay ahead. Now, where are we finding? The lion from Proverbs 22:13. Let me find my. There it is. Proverbs 22:13 says, "The lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets." And Proverbs 26:11 through 16. I'll just read the lion part. The lazy man says, "There is a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets." Okay. And we left off there. We ended last uh, week with the fundamental questions of Proverbs 26, 11 through 16, which speak to the motive or the lazy or the slothful as God defines that term. And we've been pounding our way through this term that he has, that God has, that he identifies this characteristic, this spiritual characteristic that is lazy. Lazy means something different to God. You've got to change the way you approach it. Uh, you have to know exactly what he means when he calls someone lazy and why he calls them that. He calls them lazy and why they're lazy and wicked. Uh, the, the wicked and the lazy is connected. So why does he call them lazy and why does he connect what he calls lazy to wicked? Okay, And all of that is critical. And that's critical to understanding Matthew 25, 26, where we have the lazy third man who buried his talent of gold. And, of course, Proverbs 26, 11 through 16 helps us with that, as does uh, 19, 24 Proverbs, 22, 13, and 15, 19 of Proverbs. And you know all of that already. That was just for the Internet people. Okay, I asked this question last week, and some of it in the post game, and hopefully you remember this. And I asked, why would someone who with full knowledge of the truth, he's got, a, he's got the truth, he knows the truth. There is no dispute that he knows the truth. He knows completely that Jesus Christ is the only true, merciful, just, holy, creator God. He knows that. There's no doubt. But he still, knowing full the truth, he chooses to lead not, not just himself. He doesn't go by himself into the thicket 
where he will be cut to pieces and bleed to death and caught. He also lies and encourages as many others as he can get to go with him. Who does that? Who thinks like this? Who wants to do this? And God addresses those kind of people. He calls them in Matthew 23, 13 through 36. We need to read that now really fast. He talks to the kind of people that knows the truth and they still do what they're doing. They still go out and kill as many people, including themselves, as they can. And so he talks to them, God does. We can't read all of it, but we'll read some of it. Matthew 23, 13. We'll just read two verses. There's, my goodness, there's, it goes all the way to 36. So there's 23 verses of this, and it's unbelievable when you read it and understand. This is God talking to somebody who I'm going to tell you is defined by God as lazy and wicked. Are wicked and lazy. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Why did they do that? Do they know they're doing that? I'm telling you, I believe they do know they're doing it, and that explains why they're doing it. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Boy, that taught me never to make a long prayer. Immediately, I used to go, and I'd hear guys, we'd have prayer time. He'd stand up there 30 minutes, made me look like an amateur. His prayers were going to be longer than any lecture I ever did. That's just a prayer. Uh, my goodness. Let me read that again. For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. See, that can, that convicted me. Last thing I'm going to do is make a long prayer or take a widow's house. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides. He keeps going, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you. This is God say when God says woe, woe is not good. And we need to read all of it, no time today. That's just the start. That's just there's twenty more verses of that. And wow. God speaking to men who have devoted themselves, knowing completely what they're doing and why. Devoted themselves to dying in the thicket. They've conjoined themselves willingly with absolute awareness that their father of lies, Satan, will gleefully seek their death too. Seek their destruction. He wants them to die. He wants everybody they convinced to die to die. Does that make any sense? And they know that. And they still do it. Their father of lies will gleefully celebrate their eternal condemnation. And they are nonetheless steadfast in their allegiance to Satan. So who becomes one of these guys? Who thinks like this? This is a wicked... And lazy, primarily lazy. That's how God describes him. 
And this guy also says, there's a lion in the street. Lion in the street. And that lion's going to do what? He's going to kill him. He says, lion is going to kill me. It's out in the street. And he does that as part of what he's doing to everyone else that he knows. He's roaming the whole world to try to get one convert that he knows is going straight to hell. Twice the son of hell. And then he has this lion is going to kill me in the street routine going on. And it's a lie. I said that last week. Of sorts. How is it a lie? It's very clever. Do not assume these people are ignorant. They are not. They're very clever. You see, Christ is the lion of Judah. Is he not? We know that. He's, Christ is the lion. He's also the lamb of God. Now, many people will say to you in Isaiah that the lion lies down with the lamb, right? Right? You all know that verse? It isn't in the Bible. Where'd you get that? Same place you got the pile of clothes, probably. The wolf lies down with the lamb. But Christ is the lion and he is the lamb, right? And that's the first and second advents, is it not? The lamb is when he first comes as the sacrificial substitute. He's the lamb of God. The lion is when he comes as the king, right? I like to call him the lion king. Thanks for one person laughing. But obviously that refers to his two advents as two comings. He comes first as a Passover lamb. He's inspected and then found declared perfect. He's found and he's declared to be perfect. The solution to sin, then, is uh, uh, is now imminent. Second, he comes as the lion who saves Israel. And he saves Israel from who? He saves Israel from the other lion, because I have two lions. He saves Israel from the roaring lion who devours. That is Satan, First Peter 5.8. Actually, physically is Satan in the second tense, uh, because Satan is inside of who? He's inside of the Antichrist, right? They have now melded themselves and have become very powerful. And the lion, or the king of Judah, comes and kills the roaring lion who is devouring. And the roaring roaring lion that is devouring has an incredible army of a mass of people who all know something. And yet they're still there. At least the leadership does. We can make a claim for the ignorant. But I don't think there's very many ignorant. We are astonished in this country that people will go over to uh, Iraq and join an army that beheads and crucifies and tortures children. They sign up. There's hundreds and hundreds of them running over to sign up for that. How difficult do you think it is for Satan to get you to sign up? He'll give you a patch that says Satan on it. He actually will. He'll give you what? He'll give you a mark, won't he? And you'll, not you, but somebody's going to take it. There'll be probably a billion of them that take it. If not many billions. What is going through their heads? What we're seeing in, in Iraq is just a small little picture of how bad it's really going to be. Have you noticed 
that Matthew 25, 24 through, I'm sorry, 24 through 25 is the same as Proverbs 22 through 13. Did you even know what I'm saying there? I'll help you out here. Lord, I knew you to be an evil man. That's what the lazy guy says, the wicked and lazy guy who says there's a lion outside. He says to God, he says, Lord, God, I knew you to be evil. I know you're evil. And I was afraid. What's he implying that he was afraid? He was afraid that the evil God would kill him, right? That's implied. By the way, that's a lie. He's lying, as you know. And and now we're going to have to go back and look at what Adam, because he's using what Adam says in the garden during his trial. This guy's using that too. So we have to figure out the difference between Adam and him. And we'll do that next week. But anyway... Saying that, Lord, I knew you to be evil and that you would kill me. Do you see that that's exactly the same as saying there is a lion in the streets that will kill me? So the very words are said exactly in both places. Proverbs uh, 22.13 and Matthew 25.24-25 is essentially the same. There is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. Lord, I knew you to be evil and I was afraid you'd kill me. That's the same thing. The lazy man knows that Christ is merciful God. So why is he saying it to him? Why is he doing this? He's at, he's at the, essentially the throne, isn't he? He's standing before Christ and he's saying, Christ, I know you're evil and I know you intend to kill me. I know that you're a lion in the streets and you're going to kill me. Now here he's lying in front of people that are listening to him. He's saying, I know Christ is evil, and I know he's coming to kill me. Why is he coming to kill him, right? The lazy man chooses to remain in sin. He's right there, and he chooses to remain in sin. He also knows that God is going to end sin. Justice must come. Accountability must come. So, there's the question that solves it all, right? How is choosing to remain in sin... Why does God call that lazy? Why do lazy people, as God defines it, say that God will kill them? Next week, we will solve that. Will the musicians come forward? I was reading Bob from Southern California again, his letter, just because it, it made me laugh so much. Among other things, him and Norman both from last week. Bob wants, as you know, some kind of special music for the musicians to come forward too. Uh, he thinks that would be a wonderful tradition. And words to the song and all kinds of things that he was suggesting for us. It still makes me laugh. Now I can't say it anymore without thinking of that. Bob, that's your fault. Okay, let's rise. Be dismissed.